0: My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can simply go and write a review on iTunes, which would make a big difference to spread the word for Singularity One-on-One. And number two is, of course, you can go to my blog and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be the chair of the London Futurists, David Wood. And I want to say that this interview has been long time coming, so I'm very happy to finally have David on my show, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So welcome, David.
1: Many thanks for having me, Nicola. I'm looking forward to a good conversation, too.
0: Fantastic. So, David, let us begin our conversation by asking you to please introduce yourself for those of our reviewers and listeners who may not be familiar with who you are and what you have done in the past.
1: So in the past, I was a closely associated with the smartphone industry, 25 years of my life helping to develop the ideas of mobile computing through PDAs into the first smartphones and into more complex smartphones. But for the last seven years, I've been focusing more and more on not just the future of one particular technology, smartphones, but the future of all technologies. And it's been my mission increasingly over these seven years to focus on improving the global conversation about futurism. I think that a lot of what passes for conversation about the future, this show accepted, let's be clear, but a lot of what else happens in people's meetings is uh, disappointing. And uh, what I'm doing is four things. First, as you mentioned, I chair London Futurist, which has now had more than 100 meetups. We meet roughly once or twice a month with lots of speakers on various radical scenarios about the future. I also work on a number of advisory boards. The one that I give most of my time to is the Humanity Plus board, where I was recently uh, re-elected as a member of that board that I was also heavily interested in the future, improving the calibre of the conversation about the future. I spend some of my time still working as a consultant. I speak with various corporate clients as they are aware of the challenges posed to their businesses and the opportunities available to them because of the fast-changing technology, so I work with them. And last, when I have some time, I write, whether I tweet or I blog. or Increasingly nowadays, I'm trying to do videos too.
0: Fantastic. So... Tell us, what exactly is it that's lacking in the quality of the sort of futurist, techno-progressive, or transhumanist, or maybe mainstream conversation about the impact of technology, uh, especially radical technology, such as perhaps artificial intelligence, genetics, robotics, nanotech, etc.?
1: Well, I find various issues when I go to meetings uh, in London, Cambridge, Oxford, and wherever. Some of them are very good, I'll say that at the start, and I'm very lucky to be living in a place where there are so many good discussions happening. But frequently I find uh, people aren't thinking that far afield. They're more interested in what's going to happen to their business in the next year or two years. And anything that has uh, bigger disruptive possibilities is out of uh, play. And so, often it's meant to be a discussion about the future, but it really is just a discussion of a, a slight variation of the present. Then when people do look further afield, frequently they just think it's more or less the same as today, except there'll be a few things different. There might be a new prime minister, there might be a new mix of uh, technologies to look at, but it's just a a surface change. There's nothing radical really happening. And they say, well, eventually there'll be artificial intelligence, which is smarter than humans, but that's not going to happen for centuries or maybe the end of this century and i think that's very misguided i think the changes are very likely to be happening in many ways uh, much more quickly than people expect then third people switch to the opposite kind of a opposite side of the swings they often go overboard and they suddenly realize that there might be radical changes and then they start believing almost everything that's there and so there's a lot of discussion in excited terms about future possibilities without a bit more systematic and professional and uh, academic discussion as to how do we figure out what's practical, what's credible. And then lastly, there's another thing I think is often missing, and it's an old-fashioned word. It's the word philosophy. I think a lot of the discussions about the future need to take uh, philosophical ideas into account too. Because frankly, uh, this technology is going to allow us to change human nature, and you can't get away from philosophy when that possibility comes up. And so I think that dimension is often missing. So all of these things are... Areas where I'm hoping that my mix of speakers and mix of writing will improve.
0: So, so if we are to name each of those four things that you said in a single word, what would they be? Philosophy, long-term thinking. What's the other two I'm missing?
1: Oh, one of them is too much a hype. You know, people Hyping. suddenly they get excited with the possibilities and then the other possibility is the other sphere is it's sort of a short-term futurism it's uh, just looking at the next 18 months and it's hard for me to convince people often they need to change their business in 18 months time you know it's usually the the impact on their business is often going to be five or seven years out uh, but i think uh, good business leaders and indeed good politicians need to go beyond that uh, next uh, horizon
0: Let me ask you about one word of those that I have, you know, particularly soft spot for, and that's the word philosophy. Lots of people say that philosophy has fallen behind, that, you know, philosophers have been debating pretty much the same things for thousands of years. They don't have much to show for it. And the practicality and or the usefulness for our highly advanced technological life today of philosophy is highly doubtful at at the very least, if not outright proven kind of useless or even time-wasting and inefficient of some of the kind of more hardcore views on the topic.
1: Well, there is variation in philosophy, just as there's variation in lots of other subjects. So many things that are said by uh, philosophers, amateur philosophers, uh, uh, professional philosophers, there are sort of uh, uninspiring and uh, unenlightening. But you know, many other uh, people who think about philosophy, they get new metaphors and new issues and new frameworks from uh, looking at what technology makes possible. Then they can start thinking, what is going to happen to our human nature? What's going to happen to our leisure? And it's not just a matter of what is, they come back to what ought to be. And it turns out that a lot of people have said very interesting things about this, in terms of where, where we eventually ought to get to. And I'm not just talking about the ancient Greeks, I'm talking about people like, say, John Maynard Keynes, who in the 1930s did say, eventually, you know, technology is going to advance to a state where we don't need to work anything like uh, so many hours. And we'll be able to concentrate on uh, what it means to be human rather than uh, just how do we earn a living. So there's a whole breadth of fascinating things that people have said, sometimes in uh, prose form, sometimes in literature, via science fiction and other art forms, which I can and needs to be brought into this discussion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to admit, I, I abs- I'm I a fan of John Maynard Keynes' I have to admit, very much so. Um, and, and especially what ought to be done for the future because that pretty much is what ethics is all about which is kind of the, the part of philosophy that I'm most interested in. So would you mind saying a little bit more about that that part of your work and how does it translate ethics from the theoretical realm of it into the real world that you go into every day and consult your customers and so on?
1: So there's a lot of a discussion as to a what's likely to happen. And the biggest bugbear, to my mind, in uh, some futurist circles, my biggest uh, thing that I try to oppose is the view that it's all gonna happen automatically, that we have no influence over it. There there are these iron laws of the future that uh, all we can do is observe and perhaps cheer on from the sidelines and applaud and uh, slap each other on the back for being part of this. But uh, it is extremely likely that uh, many of these uh, scenarios have left without uh, disappointing uh, outcomes, uh, very bad outcomes, in fact. So we must get uh, beyond this inevitabilism, and we must look at uh, a whole range of scenarios. So what I do is to try and draw out, uh, here's one possibility, here's another possibility, what are the key uh, parameters here? So you map out a range of scenarios... You study them to see which are baseline are credible and which aren't. But then you start saying, well, which ones would we like to be in? And sometimes you need to overcome an initial yuck, an uh, initial fut- future shock. You know, when you first start talking about what's possible, lots of people uh, uh, find a shock of the new. Uh, let's even take test tube babies as an example. Uh, if you go back 30 years old. 35 years or so, when people were seriously discussing test tube babies. And the reaction of many, many people at the time was, well, we don't want that kind of thing, do we? First of all, the church, and many people in the church were opposed to it because they thought that these people would be soulless little devils. That's an actual phrase, you know, that they might have the appearance of being human, but they'd be missing some fundamental spark of life. Then many parliamentarians were opposed to the idea, too. They just basically said, you know what, we've got too many people on this planet. This is in the days when, I mean, still today it's the case, but uh, lots of people were worried about population growth. So they said, no, we shouldn't be bringing more people in. It's, uh, it's uh, bad news. Even most doctors were opposed to it because they saw the pain that was inflicted. In the early trials and the poor women who were unfortunately unable to uh, be brought all the way to a successful pregnancy and these days people lacked the full knowledge of which hormone treatment should be applicable and eventually with private funding i have to say there was no public funding available to the pioneering doctors and then what happened is there was a big change in mood not just realizing what was technically possible but seeing actually lovely children you know they seem to have all the evidence of having a soul in them and so that, which formerly many people said, oh, we don't want that kind of thing, it's terrible. Then were saying, oh, of course it's good. So we have to discuss what's attractive and what's not attractive from many different points of view, and then hopefully people will uh, switch out and see more imaginative possibilities that enhance the human life rather than, as they fear, will, will uh, diminish the, the human uh, element in, in that future in which there's a lot of technology.
0: Yeah, and what you're talking about uh, in vitro babies uh, uh, reminds me very much to a kind of a recent development in the UK uh, about the legalization of of three parents babies, uh, which is, I think, kind of the the, the global first uh, to to my knowledge, uh, and and of course it positions Britain as at the forefront of that research, which is very important for a number of reasons. But, but going back to your previous point about engaging people and kind of choosing which kinds of futures they want to support and realize in, 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 their, in their real lives, that's part of the reason why I started blogging actually on the topic is to sort of incentivize and inspire people to stop being so much spectators, but jump in on the arena and become participants rather than merely observe. So uh, connecting that to your own uh, personal kind of uh, engagement with with the topic, on your LinkedIn profile, I think it was where you say you're both a catalyst and a futurist. So perhaps here it is where you can tell us a little bit about the catalyst part.
1: So a catalyst is this term from chemistry, which allows reactions to run faster, but doesn't actually introduce extra energy. The energy is there on the environment and uh, suddenly the presence of the catalyst uh, changes uh, possibilities. So I sometimes say I'm not an evangelist, although I I must admit I do behave evangelically sometimes, I get excited. An evangelist says over there, this is where we should go, I am the way, the truth and the life follow me. A catalyst uh, just uh, poses lots of questions. And often the Catalyst is by no means an expert in the, in the public domain, in the domain of discussion which is going on there. And so that's what I try to do. I think one of my skills is to ask good questions, uh, as well as to paint p- pictures. But then it's the environment as a whole suddenly comes to life. Uh, if I find out why people like the London Futurist events that I do, and there are many other uh, discussion groups they could go to in London, it's often because of the audience. And the audience is there in part because of the, the the questions that I pose and the questions that the audience poses. So there are, over years, the audience uh, I've come to know, many of them, I know who's likely to ask a good question. So when I see somebody putting their hand up, then I'll bring that in. And it's the questions that will bring the discussion forward. And then finally, we, we will see things in a new light. So that's what a catalyst is there for.
0: Mm-hmm. So then I can, I can hopefully aspire to be a catalyst myself. By hopefully asking good questions, because in the end of the day, that's what Socrates himself was all about, asking good questions. And we actually do know very well that the kinds of questions you're going to begin with are going to eventually lead you to the types of answers you're going to get. So the question is perhaps the part that we should spend even more time on than, than the answer itself.
1: Exactly so. And, and that's also what I saw in my hi- history in the mobile phone industry. That uh, many times people would come up with a kind of a, a feature. They would come up with a requirement. They would say to us, you, you guys, you're doing this operating system. Make sure you can put uh, support in your operating system for a particular feature. And we found that the best results came when we would try and get behind their thinking. So, okay, you want this new uh, protocol in there. What have you got in mind for that? What is the actual thing you're trying to do? And sometimes uh, our customers didn't want to share that kind of information with us, but uh, when we could persuade them to share their thinking, often we could come up with a much better solution. All oh, right, we don't need to do this very complicated thing that you've asked us to do, because actually we understand the capabilities of the platform. You see what the phone is going to be able to do. Now that we understand your desires, and um, we've uh, teased out which requirements are really important by having this a uh, uh, Socratic dialogue, I didn't ever use these words but I guess that's what it is, then uh, we could uh, help them to meet their unstated or understated needs more fully.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it hasn't really occurred to me in that specific context before, but now come to think of it, I would say yes, I imagine the the kind of the conversation between a consultant and a customer, especially at the at the outset when you're kind of researching the, their backgrounds and their field and their their industry, will be a very much a Socratic dialogue where the consultant should be asking the question and the customer kind of saying about their aspirations, what they what they believe in, where they what the the, the foundations of their industry and things like that. Uh, and I think that's that's a very valuable starting point. But so we kind of figured out. The relevance of your kind of background in science and philosophy, the importance of ethics, the kind of uh, experience that you bring in with you that you can utilize in what you do right now with respect to futurism. So where does your kind of thesis in, in quantum mechanics fit in that whole picture and does it? I mean, we can see the benefits of all the other things of your background. Where does the quantum mechanics come in?
1: So this is going back further in my past. And so before I ever worked in the smartphone industry, I did a degree in mathematics. My first love helps me to think clearly and abstractly. I think that's very important. Then I did four years in philosophy of science. There's this word philosophy again. And it wasn't just general uh, philosophy, it was what is the basis for the authority of science? What makes science uh, able to give better answers to these questions? In some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases. And so I had been studying mathematics and I had been looking at the, uh, the mathematics of theoretical physics. Like many uh, people, I'd grown up reading science fiction. I really wanted to understand how the universe worked uh, I found that the language of theoretical physics was mathematics, and so I learned mathematics in part so I could do quantum mechanics and general relativity and so on. But then I felt you well know, there's, a, there's a something missing here. I mean, I mean people know there's the problem of the interpretation of quantum mechanics, and uh, I, I, the mathematics works, but what does it mean? How does the formalism of waves and particles and nonlocality and collapsing wave functions and all of that? How does that relate to the real world? And there are different approaches which people have taken. And then other people have sprung up and said, well, you know, this uh, weirdness of quantum mechanics, it shows that there's a role for the human mind. After all, it shows that there's a role for a spirit. Just as there's a wave-particle duality, there's a, a spirit-body duality, and so on. And that led me to, to look at this field uh, with a more studious eye. So over the course of four years, I did a range of uh, topics. I looked more broadly at what makes uh, science uh, different. What's the demarcation principle between science and pseudoscience? You know, you get something like, let's pick parapsychology, is something that might be science and might be pseudoscience, or there, there are other things. How do you, de- how do you determine what's science and pseudoscience? Then I was looking at the uh, philosophy of mind. I looked at the philosophy of evolution. That stage, there was an awful lot of discussion that uh, maybe evolution isn't as scientific as people have thought. But most of all, I was looking at uh, what does quantum mechanics have to teach us about things like uh, free will and freedom and uh, non-locality. And eventually I reached the view, it wasn't what I actually wanted to start off by what thinking, but eventually I reached the view there's a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics, sometimes called the many worlds interpretation, sometimes called relative state or the multiverse, and I reached the view that that actually makes a heck of a lot of sense to all the philosophical problems of quantum mechanics. Now, I could spend uh, two hours easily uh, talking about this. It's a fascinating subject. Eventually, I decided, you know, I could spend the rest of my life doing it. And I probably need to go out and earn a living. But uh, I thought, well, I'm going to get back to this in due course. And uh, I I still keep an eye on that field. I read the likes of what Max Tegmark says on this. I mean, he he and many other people I admire write very... uh, Credibly and plausibly, I think about the multiverse, and I think that uh, this is the most comprehensive and most uh, compelling uh, interpretation of uh, what this uh, fascinating science of quantum mechanics teaches us. But I do note that Max Tegmark uh, writes about lots of other philosophical issues too, and I think uh, I don't think that's an accident. I think the people who take the questions and problems of quantum mechanics seriously are often led to a philosophical viewpoint as well as just a mathematical viewpoint. But then. As I was saying, I was spending too long uh, trying to finish my PhD. My wife told me, hey, you know, you should uh, start earning money. Uh, And she very, very sensibly advised me to spend some time teaching, which I did, and that helped me to become better at doing presentations. And then uh, some of my other friends said, you know, there's this thing called software. You've got a good brain. Why don't you learn about software? And so I drifted into the world of C programming and later C++. And that's where I spent 25 years of my life. building ever more complex software systems, learning how to optimize software, learning how to integrate complex software into reliable working systems. And eventually that software ran in millions and then hun- tens of millions, hundreds of millions of their smartphones. Smartphones, say, uh, which were made by companies, one of some of the great companies of the world, like Panasonic, Samsung, Motorola, Ericsson, Nokia, Fujitsu, and Sharp. So I worked with people in all these companies and gradually I got more rounded. I changed from being a kind of a naive technology person into seeing that there are many other factors that influence how technology is taken up and used in companies. And now I'm bringing all of that back into this world of futurism, because I think in the same way, in order to make full sense of the possibilities of technology, there's nothing inevitable about it. It very much matters on how companies do these other non-technical things and call them marketing Uh, We can call them uh, execution, and they're all incredibly important. And the companies who do that a little bit better than others will become the beneficiaries of positive feedback cycles, and they will uh, suddenly become more and more successful. And others, which were slightly poorer, will be left behind. And afterwards, we'll all say, oh, that was inevitable, wasn't it? But I don't think it was. I think if a few different choices had been made. So that's what I bring to the broader question of the future of technology. The right choices, good marketing good execution, by which I mean agility, I mean a lean approach, and I mean the particular discipline of continuous integration, being able to do all of these things will allow complex technologies to be deployed beneficially for more and more people.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you you said so many things, and I want to grab so many of them that I don't know where to begin with, but perhaps I should say that it's been what now? Maybe uh, eight years actually, since I got married, which led me to the amazing discovery that the first principle of the universe is, my wife is always right. So uh, as in your case, your wife gave you very valuable advice, one that we could, cannot ignore. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic discovery. That was a fantastic discovery for me. And even when she's wrong, again, principle number one applies. She's always right. (laughs) Uh, But moving further on, there's a couple of points I want to grab here. So the first one is you said that science is not always the best way to approach uh, issues or problems. What, What do you mean by that? Can you unpack that for me? Because I'm kind of surprised a little bit by that.
1: I guess what I meant to say is that the technological solution isn't always the best solution, that there might sometimes be simpler solutions to particular problems. So sometimes a political change or a legal change or just people behaving differently might be a better solution than a... Let's get, get some better technology and the, and the better technology will help us out. Mm-hmm. So I see technology as a tremendous tool and a tremendous advance, but it's not the be all and end all of all, all, all solutions. In terms of the limits of science, I guess I just meant that science doesn't know all the answers yet. And uh, sometimes we have to, and that's the core principle of science, admitting, uh, where where we don't know the answers. And it's not so much the scientists who will make this mistake, it's the fans of science who will uh, make the mistake. And they will state things more forcefully than they need to. Let's take an example back to the days in France where people were fearful of meteorites. They said... Meteorites uh, sometimes fall from the heaven and the scientists from the time, and I may get the story wrong, I think uh, Lavoisier, one of the pioneers of chemistry, was involved. They basically said, look, science teaches us that that there's no such things as meteorites. Bolts from the blue from gods above, you know. It's all just superstition, it's all just fantasy. We know what's uh, up in the sky. The sky is a a well-defined place. Uh, Things go in their normal orbits. We don't need to worry about the Jupiter punishing uh, superstitious uh, but it turns out that the scientists in this case were wrong, that there are uh, things that science at the time couldn't explain. And there probably are many other things that science probably can't explain. And so that doesn't mean we're never going to explain it. It doesn't mean there's a better approach than science. It just means we need to be a little bit more humble sometimes in looking at uh, a range of ideas. So jumping forward some, that was meteorites. So let's go back to the theory of mind. You know? uh, do we understand everything about the mind yet? No. Uh, what's the best approach? Well, of course, we're going to be as scientific as possible. We're going to put more probes into the brain uh, over the next 10 years. We're going to see much more what's happening in the brain than ever before. Is this going to help us solve the hard problem of consciousness? I think probably it will, but it won't be done just by doing probes. We're going to need to be thinking a lot and introspecting a lot. Is there anything to be gained from the insights of people who meditate a lot? Uh, Perhaps, yes. So scientists should not discount what they say. But it doesn't mean we're going to privilege any of these other nine scientific approaches. We just have to take that into our data.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm myself a big fan of meditation. uh, And and I think there's tons of scientific evidence uh, showing the the amazing impact uh, on the mind. Uh, And and actually, tomorrow I'm I'm going to interview Dr. Norman Deutsch on the brain that uh, rewires itself. So, So. We're going to discuss some of those issues with
1: him, but and he is open. He is open. I've heard him speak. He is open to the ideas that there might be insights from uh, Oriental medicine that uh, that assist, I and mean, he's trying to figure out why does acupuncture sometimes work. Mm-hmm. and uh, various theories, uh, we shouldn't just say, well, it's tied up with uh, fantastical charts of meridi- meridians which we know don't exist, therefore it's all got to be just uh, a placebo effect. There probably are other effects in there which we don't yet understand. And once we do learn about them, suddenly we'll see things which uh, previously we were blind to because of our paradigms.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but let me ask you about this because you mentioned it and I'm curious to find out. So you mentioned quantum mechanics and free will and how it that studying quantum mechanics has enlightened your view and or understanding of free will. So tell us then, is there such a thing?
1: So what I should have said is that I was studying quantum mechanics in part from a kind of a, a youthful hope that the, it might show that the, there is a free will and that the quantum mechanics is the, is the answer, you know, that, 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 that somehow in some some way that's, that's where freedom comes in. Uh, I no longer believe that. I believe that uh, the universe as a whole is deterministic, I believe that there is this multiverse most likely in which they, there are multiple different uh, outcomes happening. There was a different multiverse in which uh, you and I started this conversation just randomly in a totally different form and, we've, and we're now talking about uh, something totally different. There's another multiverse in which uh, all kinds of other things happen just by random I and mean, I wasn't paying attention when I was driving and smashed into a car and, and so on. So. What determines where we are? Well, I think we're in all of these universes, it's just that we experience a bit of this. Do I understand that completely? No, I don't understand it completely. I think there's still work to be done there and that will involve philosophy as well as a more mathematical analysis of the different uh, theories that people look at. So I no longer believe that there is, in some sense, a free will. But I believe we should act as if there is free will. And that's kind of maybe sounds uh, stupid, but uh, we have to believe that our introspection, our decisions, uh, are under our control in a way that they are. They are under our control, but in, in another way, they're all predetermined. So let's uh, assume that uh, we have an outcome. If we don't make that assumption, we will become more fatalist and inevitableist and we will miss some of the opportunities that are available to us.
0: But isn't that directly, diametrically opposed to what you said before about nothing being inevitable and how, for example, this company surviving and this company going bankrupt was a result of choices. And now you're telling us that there's no choices, that there's no free will and sort of everything is a cause and effect. So how do you reconcile these two views? On the one hand, you say to people, jump in, don't be spectators, participate, nothing is inevitable. We can make a difference, we can change it. On the other hand, you're saying there's no such thing as free will.
1: Well, I think there's more than one level to to analyze this from. It's like you can study a table and you can say, well, there's nothing there but atoms. Yes, it's true, there's nothing there but atoms. But there's more than atoms from another point of view. They're formed into a table. Um, so there's emergent properties it doesn 't mean that there's some some new substance there that wasn't there before you, 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 don't, you won't find an atom that says i'm a table atom you 'll just find the same stuff that's that's there all along so in the same way uh, and from one point of view, everything is following predetermined outcomes but from another level, when we are locked in with our lack of knowledge and we're locked in from our particular spectator point of view, we do have this uh, perception that we can make a difference, and I think uh, we, we need to engage uh, each of us uh, should uh, act as if we free will and act as if we will make a difference. Uh, how do I reconcile that 100%? Well, this I come back to where I said that we don't yet understand all these things fully. But we don't need to understand everything completely fully in order to uh, take actions in our lives. So we should act as if we have free will, whilst re- realizing that, uh, quite likely, we don't in some fundamental sense have, have that.
0: Yeah, because to me personally, that's kind of part of the issue is like, you know, I, I've had many scientists on my show and, and most of them pretty much espouse the same view that you just did, that, you know, we should act as if there is free will, but there isn't really much of it. Uh, and, and and I can see how the scientific kind of evidence for that is, is enormous, if you will. But uh, first of all, as as a kind of a practical way of living your life, I don't find it good because it would make me sit on my couch and do nothing for all day long and and then it has some very terrible ethical implications with respect to responsibility for for example for my
1: own actions or the actions of other people uh and and so so my my, my feedback on that is it sounds a bit similar to people who used to say well you know if there's no god I can do anything I like you know I'm only good because there's a god who's watching me And they say, how can you be moral if there's no God? Well, we we, we can still be moral. We can make our own reasons to saying, well, you know, I'm not going to go about killing and raping because uh, it's bad for me and it's bad for the people I love, it's bad for society and so on. So you can have reasons for acting morally without an arbiter, uh, a divine arbiter of morality. So why don't we just uh, sit on a couch all day if, if everything's predetermined? Well, we, we, we can just uh, decide, you know, I uh, know, the, in the same way that we can work out on morality, we can work out the pros and cons of various actions, we can think to ourselves, if I sit on a couch all day, eventually I'm going to get bored and foolish and my wife's going to walk out and-
0: <laughs> The wife again. <laughs>
1: The wives make the big difference in life, that's for sure, but... Well, we are social creatures, and our wives or our spouses are obviously a very important part of that, but our other network of people that we love, they, they will also eventually lose patience with us. So there are all kinds of reasons to act as if we have free will, even if it turns out that uh, from one point of view we don't.
0: Yeah, but, but quite honestly, this argument you just made doesn't quite cut it for me, because... Uh, for me you would either sit on the couch or you will not sit on the couch you would get out and do stuff and, and that's a decision you make that's it. and once you've made it you follow through and and, and the the sort of the, that kind of causation and deterministic causation from the beginning of the universe till the end of it basically leaves m- takes me out of the driver's seat completely. So I I have no control in where we're going and I bear no responsibility for the results. And so philosophically speaking, I have trouble with that, like.
1: Okay, so I agree. I, I, I'm not entirely happy with this line of argument either. But I have decided a long time ago that I don't want to spend a huge amount of my time thinking about this particular issue because I didn't see it was going to be resolved anytime soon. Yeah. And I took a series of decisions, and that's when I stopped studying the philosophy of quantum mechanics any further and started to focus on teaching. And I decided not to finish writing up my thesis because I thought, you know, we've got to make the practical decisions in the practical world. And I'm glad for the decisions I did take at that time. I'm glad that I uh, ended up unexpectedly in the world the software and mobile phones. Uh, so I will come back to that sometime in the hundred years or so in the future. And hopefully others will, will beat me to it and we'll have good answers. And probably the answer is written in some book already or some blog post, which I, I'm not familiar with. But it's not my immediate priority. My immediate priority is to say look, there are major issues with technology just around the corner, which are changing society in radical ways. Uh, we need to have the discussion about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will come back again to to the sort of the mobile phone end of things. But let me ask you another question here. How is it that you got interested in futurism in general and transhumanism in particular?
1: So, like many people on your show, I'm sure I watched and read science fiction when I was younger. And then I thought, well, that's just science fiction. You know, it's cute. It's uh, interesting. But then I discovered a series of books, I think the first that made a big impact on me with Eric Drexler's uh, Engines of Creation. And I was very busy at work, but I still thought, God, this is a future that may not be that far ahead. It's radically different from uh, how people are imagining in terms of the the new materials, in terms of being able to have uh, layers of uh, skin or layers of clothing attached. So I thought that was fascinating. But again, I was too busy at work and I left it aside. Then I saw there was this guy called Ray Kurzweil who had this book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, which I thought was a very strange title. I could understand people talking about machines becoming intelligent, but could machines become spiritual? So I picked it up a few times in in the library and didn't read it, but then I just said, "Yeah, let's have a go at it. And I know people can criticise the book in various ways, but it painted a fascinating picture of the future ahead. And I thought, you know some of this stuff might be happening sooner. That's the key the key insight. Some of the stuff may be happening sooner than before. The thing that really tipped me over the edge from uh, just an occasional uh, amateur uh, philosopher on this subject to being a more practical activist was the book by James Hughes, who's now uh, the executive director of the IEET. He wrote a book called Citizen Sideborg. I can't remember exactly the title but why democratic politics must be concerned about the technology of the future. And he said that it's not just technology, it's changing, politics is changing and needs to change. And uh, there's going to be battles, there are going to be people who are opposed to this, you know, the bioconservatives, the same people who oppose the test tube babies that we spoke about earlier. The same people who opposed using genetic engineering, uh, genetic modifications to have these three-parent families or 2.1 parent families, whatever. The same people who are opposing all of that may get in the way of realizing this good future. So I thought, I need to form alliances. So at that stage, I did an internet search, and I found something called the World Transhumanist Association, WTA. And it said there was a bunch of transhumanists in the United Kingdom called Extra Britannia. And they might meet in the particular pub there. Penderill's Oak in uh, Holborn. So I went there and first time I didn't meet anybody at all. I was just looking in the wrong place. Or they, they, and they, <laughs> but but uh, later I, I did meet them. They, they called themselves half-jokingly six men in a pub. Well, there were many more than six of them, but often for meetings there wouldn't be that many. But it was fascinating discovering there were people who had thought long and hard about these topics. A few years later, the person who was running it, Fabio, also known as Extropica, mean, he had changes in his life, he was moving away, he had children to look after. So the group said, is there anybody else you can step forward to run it? And by that stage, I had lots of experience in running events, because I'd done that in my work in the smartphone industry. I had teams working for me who had chaired major industry events on the future of smartphones. So I thought I could uh, do some of that. And so in 2008, March, seven years ago, I organized my first such meeting. Uh, we made many mistakes along the way, some very, meetings with very few people indeed, but uh, gradually we got better and better at it. When I say we, there's, a, there's always been another group of people who have helped me out in this. So that's what's led me into it. The realization that the technological impetus that's led to smartphones is part of something much, much bigger, that it won't just be smartphones. In fact, we can talk about it. it's going to be smart humanity if we do it right. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, we're going to come back to that point uh, a little bit later. But before that, Callum Chase here wants to know, what's your favorite science fiction book?
1: My favorite science fiction book? Uh, Well, some I really loved when I was a child. I remember this uh, short story, uh, But Who Can Replace a Man? I think it's by Brian Aldiss. A bunch of uh, 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 grade two brains and grade five brains, a whole bunch of... uh, Artificial intelligence robots in the future in in trouble because the humans are killing themselves and they're I'm not sure what to do next and they thought all the humans had killed themselves and the robots uh, anyway it's fascinating the words this hierarchy of brains amongst robots but in the end they come across a man who's starving and hungry and they just he says please get me some food and they say yes master. <laughs> I uh, saw so a short story, which somehow made me think you know, about the future of the artificial intelligence. More recently, what? I love Ramesh Nam. Ramesh Nam writes uh, incredibly rich pictures in which he talks about the future of mind-to-mind uh, communications. He has lots of bioconservatives in his books as well who are opposed to what's going on. And he mixes in the themes of meditation and uh, other routes to enlightenment. I like uh, Callum as well. I should mention Callum's book too, uh, Pandora's Brain, which uh, I think is going to do a lot to make people think about some of these issues of artificial general intelligence. It's set in the relatively near future, and certainly in the first draft, I don't think it survived all the, re- the rewrites in the first draft, uh, the characters attended a, a London Futurist meeting. <laughs> he, had it, he, he moved it from Conway Hall to Brighton, but uh, he had a bunch of speakers there. And I thought, I know this. So this is the meeting I ran uh, in 2011 or whatever, when various people like Max Moore and uh, Aubrey de Grey and Natasha Vita Moore said various things which were picked up in the book. So for that reason, I like that. William Hurtling, I think, is a fantastic author as well. He's also writing in a different way about the possibilities of computers coming alive. In terms of films, I think the film's actually getting better. I think Chappie is interesting in its own way. I loved it too. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be endorsed by the South African uh, Tourist Authority anytime soon because it doesn't paint a very flattering picture about some of the suburbs of Johannesburg, but uh, he approaches in an engaging way some of the issues of consciousness. And Ex Machina, uh, or Ex Machina, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that uh, other story about artificial intelligence. So gradually the stories are getting better, and so I like that. There's been a lot of bad stories told over the years in which a uh, technological enhancement is always for the selfish and it always has bad aspects and it would always be better in the end if we were just simpler. But I think that story has uh, been played out and people are realizing that the technology can actually have tremendous advantages as well as just the disadvantages.
0: So, do you think there is that kind of a progress, if you will, positive movement of sort of negativity towards positivity an optimism if even if you will in sort of the popular mainstream representation of the ideas that we're talking about
1: i'm seeing some reasons for hope i mean there is a more understanding of what uh, possibilities technology can offer and even in the dystopias so the other uh, film that was done recently by the director of chappie neil camp, I think his name is. Uh, the previous one was Elysium, which in some ways is a terrible dystopia, in which and it's a parable on I think uh, many countries' healthcare systems, in which the rich get very good treatment and the bad the, and and very bad treatment is available to the the rest of the population. But even in that, there's a showing uh, quite an interesting way as to what technology might be able to do with nanobots uh, curing uh, diseases and uh, tracking down cancer, and even at the end of that. Uh, Spoiler alert, I think some of that technology is uh, due to some uh, political changes made available much more widely. So uh, I think Hollywood is learning, but it's only learning because it's having discussions with uh, serious futurists and they are listening to serious futurists. So we need to keep on uh, being as articulate as we can in our conversations and highlighting the threats as well as the upsides. And I don't mind them looking at the threats, I just want them to be the kind of the important threats rather than some made-up weird threat that is kind of an old, old yesterday's future as opposed to today's future. Mm -hmm.
0: I think it's on your blog where you say that you spent the past 25 years envisioning and enabling huge improvements in smart mobile devices, and now you plan to spend the next 25 years envisioning and enabling huge improvements in smart humans or in other words, transhumans. Would you mind saying a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh, in both cases, it was a long project. So smartphones did not come about overnight. When we started, me, uh, myself and some colleagues in uh, the London in the 1995, 1996, when we started talking about uh, smartphones, everybody said, oh, this is a very much a minority interest. Who's going to want to carry around a device that uh, uh, that has all these features just for rich technical people or geeky people and we dared to imagine that they would eventually be adopted uh, if, in due course by almost everybody on the planet. So I did write uh, a blog post, though it wasn't a blog post at the time, effectively a blog post in 2001 that said, you know, by 2007 there'll be 100 million people in the world using these devices. And by chance, that turned out to be more or less right. You know, that, uh, it, but it took a long time getting there. For many years, we'd only sold uh, very small numbers. So these things take time. The exponential curve has a disappointing phase, a deceptive phase, before it has the disruptive phase. And to get it out, to to keep it going, you need to do a heck of a lot of things. It won't happen all by itself. It can quite easily conquer and fail. Most exponential curves of technological improvements die because uh, there isn't the kind of uh, feedback cycles to keep them going. But we did manage to see how to keep it going. We managed to see step by step. And I say we, it was the founding team in Symbian, uh, which uh, was sponsored and supported by Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, and so on. So we gradually saw how to make that technology work better. I think it's going to be exactly the same with the broader technological changes that we futurists and uh, which transhumanists like to talk about, like getting uh, smarter, uh, getting uh, fitter and stronger, having longer lives. It's not going to change overnight, and it's going to have many disappointments along the way. And so it may well take 25 years to to make this come about. And it won't be inevitable. uh, There are possibilities in the technology to, i mean i'm talking pragmatically now <laughs>
0: <laughs> i was going to say from the beginning of the universe it's all kind of cause and effect right so it's going to happen what's going to happen
1: well uh, but if we think like that then uh, we want we want <laughs> forget it
0: yeah, i'm just joking i'm just pulling uh, your leg
1: interview me in 5 years time and i hope i have a better answer for you and I'm, I'm sure i'm sure i'm sure the answer is already in some of your other podcasts i just i just don't know what's uh, what's all out there no but uh, The progress with uh, us humans becoming much healthier, and smarter, and kinder, and uh, more knowledgeable, the progress towards more rational and saner social structures, more rational and saner politics, it's going to have a long, slow, disappointing phase, and a deceptive phase, before it has this big disruptive transition phase. And I can't say when it's going to happen, but we have to be alert and paying close attention. I have to say, the company I was in, Symbian, and its bankers were a bit slow in the end. We, we, we paid all the price in our long investment. We did a heck of a lot of stuff that got the very first smartphones there. But when the industry started moving a lot faster, uh, many of these companies that I worked with, uh, which uh, in some cases, like Nokia, are a fraction now of, their, of what they were at the time, they were caught up in inertia. They were not able, despite uh, talking about agility and despite talking about the need to... to make quick changes. They were too much caught up in inertia. And so that was an example in which the dramatic, energetic application of the technology, which was needed at that stage, could not happen fast enough. And so it may be the same with the breakthroughs of technology ahead of us. It may be that we're waiting and waiting, and then suddenly there's nanotech, which is much more capable. Suddenly there's AI, which is much more capable. And if we're not really paying attention then, then bad outcomes may come rather than good outcomes. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me ask you this. What's your biggest dream? What's the best case scenario for David Wood? What's the vision of the future that you have picked to work for?
1: Well, it is a positive singularity. It is that uh, we'll be able to forget about worries of uh, earning a living, also forget about worries about our health degrading, forget about worries about our loved ones dying, Uh, and that we'll be able then to have all the hard work of of life taken care of by automation and by intelligence. And that we'll be able then to pursue the really tough problems, like the philosophical problem that you and I have been discussing, like the full meaning of quantum mechanics, and whatever else that attracts us. And I certainly want to, that to happen in my lifetime or in the lifetimes of people that I care and love about. And so that's the vision that I want to herald in and be part of this positive singularity in the not too distant future, 25 time, years' time or so.
0: And if you were to give that probability a number of sort of percentage chance of it happening, what number would you assign to that probability?
1: Perhaps about a, it was somewhere around about 50%, but it might be slightly higher than 50%. So let's let this guys go for 60%. but That leaves an awful lot of bad probabilities out there. The probability that in 50 years' time it's more or less the same as today, but with just a few different colours in place, uh, is almost a zero. So it will not be what we are. And so there's at least uh, a whole range of possibilities of things going much more badly including a negative singularity, or including a, a collapse of society due to, well, there's a number of things you could cause a collapse of society, including runaway climate change, including the degradation of the environment, including a rogue access to weapons of mass destruction, terrorists who are already doing terrible things, Boston bombing, the ISA atrocities, they just need to get a little bit uh, luckier or get their hands on even more terrible things, the guy who the, the 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 depressive co-pilot of the German wings aeroplane, you know, he uh, killed 150 people. Uh, you can imagine somebody in the five ten years time uh, gets his hand on a nuclear trigger of some sort and says, "Right, f you, world! You've been nasty to me. I'm going to be nasty to you." So we must stop all of these things. So these have all got probabilities, which are reasonably small, but they might add up to, together into I don't know. 30 or 40 percent probability of a really bad outcome uh, within the the next 25 years.
0: Speaking of those really bad outcomes, that's the second question that Colin Chase submitted for you. And he asked how to promote a balanced discussion of existential risks.
1: So it takes time
0: because you mentioned right now the bulk of them.
1: Yes. So it takes time. And at first, people have all kinds of strange reactions to them. We, we, we've all got emotional kinds of uh, uh, sensitivities about some of these topics. And uh, the first time people come across it, they get very scared. They can become irrational. And there are primitive cognitive biases can kick in and lead us to not to have that discussion wisely at all. But you know what? We just keep at it and the second time it's not quite so shocking we're able to be a little bit more rational And the third time it's we're able to go further so I envisage a positive feedback cycle just like technology Grows uh, through lots of people building on it, critiquing each other's work, taking it to pieces, ex- examining the open source, and then building it up again, and new tools and new techniques. We have to be the same with our analysis of future scenarios. So, the first set of future scenarios we paint are very crude and very simplistic, and we don't know what's credible and what's not credible. But guess what? When we write them down, other people can get involved in uh, analyzing them and criticizing them. And um, we must the be better at uh, describing them and we'll get better at describing them and over a while we'll figure out actually this thing which we thought was the most likely scenario it's actually not possible but some variant of it we need to consider instead so it takes time and so it is a conversation that needs to take place through multiple dimensions there will be Hollywood who will tackle it in various ways there will be tweets and blogs and videos and uh, Let's keep writing books and articles and figuring out which kinds of ways of describing it work and which doesn't work. We should not shut down the conversation just because uh, some people are scared at it. On the other hand, we should learn how to have that conversation in a a better way. Let's use the best of humanity's reasoning skills uh, collectively and have that conversation.
0: Well, this is pretty much the way I feel about it. And, and again, it's it's the reason why I started Singularity One-on-One, for example, to start that conversation and to keep it as open as possible rather than try and color it or direct it as as some other have tried. But Callum Chase, for example, during my interview with him, said that he could understand why, for example, some scientists working on artificial intelligence may not be too keen in sort of seeing themselves uh, or the research they're working on uh, in an article with the Terminator Terminator title or a picture of the Terminator attached to it or something like that and and how, you know, in, in some ways, they're afraid that putting that discourse in the public eye may be counterproductive for the work they do.
1: So we must get to the stage that whenever an article like that appears... So the the mass reaction is, oh, God, that's a bad article. What a, what a terrible journalist. Who's going to do that kind of thing? And at first it's not going to happen. At first people are going to laugh and they're going to be caught along. But we have to re- elevate the level of conversation so that people say, hey, this is not acceptable. This is uh, bad journalism. And it's easy to say that the population as a whole are... Uh, are uneducated and uh, prejudiced and uh, they make all kinds of bad decisions but this is the kind of view that said that we shouldn't give the vote to women we shouldn't give the vote to people unless they got property rights we shouldn't give the vote to people if they're under 30 or whatever there has been in the past lots of a suspicion of humanity so I say we can do better we can involve more people in a, a good conversation Uh, let's engage and uh, it will be surprising. Uh, People will pick up the story as well.
0: Yeah, I I very much agree with, with you, but I think it's time for us to be a little bit more specific about the terms that we've been using so far. So let's define, what is transhumanism in
1: your view? So transhumanism is a variant of futurism. It's concerned about the future But it's a variant of the future that says we must address the question of human nature. And it's about, let's look at the word transhumanism, it's transcending humanity. Some people say it's transitioning from humanity. Well, I say it's transcending humanity's weaknesses. And it says that if we really want the best future, we want to live uh, as we think we should, we have to realize that the limits that are in human nature, the limits of frailty, the, the fact that we are biologically going to decay, the fact that we've got cognitive biases, the fact that we're often uh, too angry or too frustrated or too childish, whatever, these things need to be addressed. And guess what? They can be addressed by intelligence, broadly, and intelligence manifested by technology. So transhumanism says we're not at the end of the evolution. We're not the pinnacle of God's creation or whatever. We are at a relatively early stage of what the evolution of intelligent life can achieve. And so the future we look forward to is not just technology. It's not just flying cars and hoverboards. It is humans who are more human in the sense of uh, having richer experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this then. Does transhumanism have a bad name? Or in other words, why, for example, some people, such as our friend Ramesh Nam, don't like the term transhumanism. So his book, for example, was called More Than Human, and he never used that, that word once, I, I think, if I remember, inside of the book itself. And we even discussed why he doesn't like the term. And then you have organizations such as Humanity Plus, which, you know, kind of evolved from the World Transhumanist Association. So what's the impetus behind that? Is there something negative associated with that term?
1: I think there has been negative things associated with that term, and there are still some reasons that people recoil from the term. And I want to fix these reasons. I want to be involved in uh, making the word transhumanism a a great word again, that people are happy to use. Uh, Because it it describes something which uh, makes a great deal of sense, transcending human limitations. But uh, it has got some uh, uh, bad history for a a number of reasons. I think in some cases, not so much the leaders of transhumanism, but some of their followers, some of their fanboys, if you like, they have been uh, a little bit... uh, uh, unattractive in the way that they presented themselves or so they've allowed themselves to be presented they've allowed themselves to be presented in some cases as being a little bit too uh, egocentric just thinking about their own future rather than the future of uh, everybody else in some cases they have also given this impression of inevitabilism for example there is a Facebook group which proudly says the victory of uh, the victory of transhumanism is inevitable I think it's called scientific transhumanism and uh, we don't uh, need to worry about uh, present-day issues with uh, poverty, or the fact that many people are dying uh, from disease, because it's all going to be sorted out soon anyway. Now, I don't think people actually often say that, but that's the impression that's been given. And then there has been infighting sometimes amongst transhumanists. Sometimes we transhumanists, uh, we're very intellectual people. Sometimes we lack the emotional intelligence that's needed. It's so only a minority, but sometimes that leads to kind of unattractive uh, infighting and uh, uh, quite nasty things that, that are said. And so again, that's a reason to say, "Hey, I want to separate myself from that, and let's let's pick a different let's pick a different name."
0: Was that the reason why you called uh, your organization the London uh, Futurists rather than the London Transhumanists?
1: So, I mean, there's, a, there's another story there. Actually, I, mean, I created something called UK Humanity Plus, because that was, the, I saw it as the, the UK version of the International Humanity Plus organisation, whose name had been changed by then. But I quite happily on, my, on the Facebook group, I talked about transhumanism. Now there was, as it happened, somebody else made a group called London Futurists on Meetup, and he started advertising all my meetings. And lots of people came into uh, my meetings because of the meetup.com, which I didn't know about. So there's a wonderful piece of uh, social uh, engineering. And so then he stopped running London Futurists uh, as a site. He got something else doing in his life. And so I took it over and started using that name. And I found it's a good name for the first level of discussions because we should be discussing some of these futurist opportunities and trends uh, Even with people who don't share that kind of transhumanist vision and aren't happy to call themselves transhumanists, they think that, well, we should just look at what we can do with technology and stay away from uh, changing human nature. Mm -hmm. And there are others, by the way, who say, well, of course we are changing human nature, but we don't need to talk about changing human nature. And they say, H plus should stand for happiness plus rather than humanity plus in a sense, you know. Rather than say, let's say, have a movement that's going to do all these things, we should just get on and do it without having a movement. And so they will say, we don't even need an ism. And uh, I I sympathise with that view. London Futurist is certainly open to all these people who wouldn't describe themselves as transhumanists or don't even see the need for an ism. They just want to be part of this, uh, I think, enlightened discussion. But I don't hide anything. It's quite clear that I'm a transhumanist. In almost every topic, every meeting, or every second meeting, there's certainly a discussion of transhumanists. There.
0: So you, we've discussed uh, H plus. So I think it's time for us to tell us a little bit more about P plus. What does P
1: plus stand for? Ah, so in January this year, I was talking with Eamon Twyman, who is a long-term uh, transhumanist in the UK. And we were reflecting on the fact that uh, there's a general election happening in the UK In uh, at that time. It was five, five months' time. And we were both uh, disappointed at the lack of uh, discussion on technological issues in in uh, what we saw from uh, politicians. In fact, as far as I know, out of all the MPs, 500 or 600 MPs in the UK House of Parliament, only one of them has a true background in science. And almost all the rest of them have got backgrounds in law or just political studies. You know? So very few people talking properly about the possibility. So we were reflecting, could we do something for the UK election? And then we also saw what Zoltan Eastman has done in America. Now, he's got a bit more time. His election is starting until 2016. But he'd already started saying, you know, we should change politics. We should uh, create a transhumanist party. And at first, we weren't sure how we'd received, but we saw that actually there was a, a receptivity among the general population, amongst the media, to say, yeah, there's a story here that needs to be told. So we said, right, we should do something similar in the UK. So we said, should we therefore concentrate on creating a party to be elected in the May 2015 election? And in the end, we decided we should do two things. We should indeed form a party. And so there is a UK transhumanist party. But we also said we need a broader think tank which is going to focus on the future of politics. You're taking advantage of technology to improve uh, political discussion, whether it's things like uh, automatic fact-checking. So every time a politician speaks, there will be a whole hive mind running in parallel that says, ah, oh, what he said is true, but he's not telling you this. And uh, uh, no, that's the kind of the vision. So whether it's uh, electronic voting or, more generally, a better democracy and Frankly, policies that will allow technology to flourish rather than being an afterthought. There's so much the technology could be doing. After all, we're worried about the uh, spiraling cost of the healthcare system, as we should be. It is spiraling cost. Well, guess what? The best way to fix that is to fix aging. You know, That's going to be expensive in the short term, but in the longer term, it's going to take so much cost out of the healthcare system. Prevention is much better than cure. So long story short, we decided we're going to form a... UK Transhumanist Party, which has been done. And there is now a candidate standing in one of the seats in Liverpool uh, for election. His name is Alexander Caron. He's not able to stand as a member of the Transhumanist Party, sadly, because it takes time to register parties officially and the, the UK part of the government that was uh, registering all the new parties got overloaded. And so officially he can't stand as a member of the party, but he is standing as an independent candidate with support from a transhumanist party. And he may well be the first open transhumanist uh, standing on a transhumanist platform for parliamentary election anywhere in the world. And there are other people who come into parliament, and they are transhumanists, but they didn't make that a major plank of their election. At the same time, I said we should do... Uh, think tank, a think tank that will reach out to all these people in the existing parties and there are people in existing parties whose heart is very much in the right place. Men and women of goodwill who actually are aware perhaps dimly perhaps more uh, clearly about the possibility for uh, technology and there is actually uh, in, the, in the UK another uh, parliamentary candidate uh, uh, who stands for one of the other parties, the uh, Liberal Democrats, his name is Darren Reynolds. So he's not standing in an open transhumanist platform, but he is one of the signatories of the Transhumanist uh, Manifesto Declaration from, when was it, 1998. So he's been around for a while too, and he wants to influence uh, politics from an existing party, which is the Liberal Democrats Party, which is the kind of the third party in the UK Parliament. And so we in Transpolitica, which is the name we have given for this uh, think tank, and we chose the name as a kind of conscious echo of transhumanism. Transhumanism is anticipating tomorrow's humanity, H+, Transpolitica is anticipating the better politics of the future, P+. And uh, we have published one book of essays, we're planning a second book of essays, it's still early days, and it may take, I hope not 25 years, but it may take, say, 10 years to have a real impact in British politics. Perhaps sooner. I mean, we sometimes think it's five years till the next British election. There is another scenario in which there's going to be another hung parliament in which no party reaches... Uh uh, majority and uh, last time that happened in 2010 two parties managed to form a stable alliance for five years so there hasn't been an election until then but you know if there isn't a proper alliance uh, formed it's very stable this time around maybe whoever is prime minister will go back to the country as we call it they can call an election within two years so it may be that in two years time there's a kind of a scenario just coming off the top of my head it may be that we'll have a uh, hundred members of there who are transhumanists standing for election then uh, either as people from the transhumanist party or as people inside the other parties who maybe keep their transhumanism slightly suppressed, but they're able to talk about it when, when asked.
0: Now, David...
1: I was just off the top of my head, so I probably regret saying that, but I think that's a, that's a possible vision for the future.
0: It definitely is possible, and and I hope it, it becomes, you know, more probable as we move forward, because it would be really a, a fascinating experiment to watch also, uh let me ask you about some of those dystopian scenarios though and and sort of the probability that you attach to them things such as uh and and, and i have you know different sort of prob i assign personally different probabilities to each of them but but many of them are very substantially sort of on my fear list or let me ask you before that perhaps in the other way around what I ask you what you're dreaming, what, what's your biggest dream, but what's your biggest fear?
1: Well, the biggest fear is that uh, we politicians and leaders of all sort will focus on the short term. And by focusing on the short term, we will uh, not allow technology to be developed in a positive way. And instead, uh, some uh, really bad use of that technology may come around. And so I've talked about the Boston bombers and the IS terrorists and the German wings uh, pilot. I think uh, some level of depression and uh, antagonism and alienation may increase in society in the next few years because of uh, technological unemployment, which means uh, there are fewer well-paying jobs for the middle class, as it were, and more and more people have to work for lower salaries or can't get into the workforce. And some of these people have high expectations. And many of the people, by the way, who are leaving Britain and going to join IS in Syria and Iraq, they're quite well-educated. They're, they're grade A students at A level. So they are not foolish and stupid, but they are seeing things they don't like in present-day society and it's not just that they, they like they think there's too much a decadence and their people are going around in scuts and playing pop music it's not just that they feel that the the, the The aspirations of people to a better life are being blocked because we've just got a focus on GDP, focusing on improving the economic situation, focusing on austerity, focusing on uh, profits for corporations and not really worrying about the impact on the environment. So there are all kinds of reasons. and We can believe and accept some of them and others are imagined and exaggerated. But for all kinds of reasons, people are increasingly alienated and angry. And especially if the state acts in a more uh, brutal way, if the state has got uh, more surveillance, if the state is spying more vividly, as we found out is happening uh, by the revelations from Edward Snow- Snowden and include GCHQ, and if some of that uh, is picked up in a very negative way we might get more angry people. And some of these angry people will turn to other ideologies, and I particularly fear, I think, uh, uh, fundamentalist Islam is a, a strand of Islam. I think there are many wonderful Islam, wonderful Muslims. I think they're mistaken about their theo- about their belief in uh, God and so on, but I think they're wonderful people. But there is also uh, this strand in Islam, which is an authentic strand, it's not a perversion, it's an authentic strand in Islam that says, you know, we should be fighting this jihad and we should be accelerating towards apocalypse in some sense. And so some of these people who are more alienated might uh, do really bad things with the weaponry they can get their hands off in ways that we can't yet anticipate. After all, they surprised us with what they did on YouTube. Suddenly they were extremely slick and effective by putting around these videos of brutality, which have been in some ways well shot.
0: They're very well they're very social savvy and and, and they're very they're very good on the technical end of things. It's really impressive, I have to say. Uh, But let me focus a little bit more here on on one of the issues that you mentioned, which is technological unemployment, because that's an issue that I'm probably ranking with the top three issues that I'm really concerned about together with, let's say, environmental degradation and climate change, uh, technological unemployment uh, is another major issue for me. So there's two camps of people. One of them gives the classic sort of economic argument Peter Diamandis is probably one of the sort of most vocal proponents, which is to say, you know, if you look back 150 years ago in America, you know, I don't know, what was it, 60% or 95% of the population was involved in farming. Today, it's like less than 2%. So, you know, through industrialization, we have managed to create more jobs that we have managed to destroy. Now that's, I accept that argument has been true maybe for until about 20 years or so ago. Uh, And and my concern is that that does not hold true anymore, personally. And that today, unfortunately, the good, profitable, well-paid jobs more are destroyed than they are created. So whereabouts do you stand on that as a futurist?
1: Well, I think there are more than one scenario, but the scenario you have painted is the leading one the one that's most likely to come about because uh, unemployment isn't as low sorry unemployment isn't as high as some people might have thought but that's often because many people are actually unemployed but they're doing a very low paid job so they're doing jobs less than their aspirations and so some of the true figures may be hidden and also the it is a smaller and smaller number of people who are benefiting fully from the the full uh Power of technology. The one percent. Perhaps it's one percent. Perhaps it's five percent or ten percent. But uh, the idea that well the society will adjust assumes that there is time to adjust. And if the technology is accelerating much more quickly than before, then suddenly it's not possible. And so. It's like the story with horses. You know, horses had various jobs for a while, and then when they didn't have to do some jobs, they could do other jobs, and then they could do yet other jobs, and then suddenly, most of the jobs that horses did were done much better by machines. And they still do a few things, but there's much, many fewer needs for horses in society today. So today, humans can be reskilled to an extent, but guess what? It takes time to reskill, and during the time that we reskill, it might be that uh, automation, robot software will improve faster than we have been able to improve. And that's the sort of another definition of singularity. Yeah. You know that uh, the, the machines are improving faster than humans are able to do, and as a result of that, uh, there'll be much less to do. Now, what's going to happen? Uh, Marshall Brain talks about this in his new book, by the way. He's the How Things Work guy. He's written a, a dis- and released a, a week or two ago. I think it says something like the rise of the second intelligent machine and how humans will be as irrelevant as cockroaches in the future, which is a kind of a, uh, a, a, a wow thing to put on, on your page. But he, he points out you know, that uh, there's a range of things that computers aren't yet able to do well enough, but they're on the point to be able to do it. Things like computer vision. So even the cars that are driven today, they're not using much computer vision, they're using a whole bunch of other things to figure out what they may or may not be seeing. But once computer vision moves forward, as it's likely to do in the next 10 years, a whole range of jobs which humans are currently doing won't be able to do. And some futurists, I'll come back to my criticism of many futurists here, some futurists say, that's all right, there'll still be all the creative jobs left because uh, you'll never get creativity out of a hunk of silicon. But uh, you and I know that there is already software that can read emotions, detect emotions, can pick up people's emotions well, software that can write music in the style of Bach or write music in the style of Chopin as well as anybody else, a human can write music.
0: Write blog articles and probably soon do podcasting.
1: Quite. So, and there's certainly some creativity that's going to be harder to crack, but at some stage, uh, fewer and fewer jobs will be accessible to humans. And if we just follow the the normal dictates of economics, then it's going to be strong incentives for all companies to switch to lower cost, more reliable uh, machinery. So the Answer isn't clear yet. The answer is probably, as Marshall Brain advocates, that there should be a basic income. There's a new book coming up by Martin Ford, uh, who I think you be well worth talking to again. I'm sure you've talked to him in the past. It's due out next month, which is probably going to be the most sustained analysis yet of the case for basic income. I mean, he's the person who rose to prominence because I mean, he basically wrote the first book in this whole field, The Lights in the Tunnel. When he said that, you know, for the economy to survive, you need people to be paid wages because it's the people who are paid wages that actually consume. And if there are no consumers, then the lights go out in the tunnel. So he is advocating a more sustained and uh, uh, well-analyzed vision of uh, basic income. Now, but many people will say, hang on, we don't do that. That's socialism. That's uh, going to encourage greediness. That's going to be uh, ill-advised. Uh, every, if we have to raise taxation, guess what? All the companies are going to leave. They're going to go overseas. Uh, and so there's difficult issues there. How do we raise tax in one form or another without uh, destroying the economy in the process in order to cover a basic income, which I think is the uh, probably the right solution? And we'll get there in stages too. So it might take uh, several iterations over 20 years until we have got a proper system in place. But my fear is that uh, other people will react against it. And there is uh, a visceral hatred in many, in many parts of the world of what they've called socialism, anything to do with redistribution. And people really feel that it would be uh, an infringement, a criminal act, if more of their money was taken away from them. Well, I have to say uh, redistribution is how society has always worked uh, and uh, we, we need to just do it intelligently and consciously.
0: Actually, in one of my early f- politic, political science books, uh, uh, the authors proposed that that's what politics is all about. Who gets what, under what conditions, for how long, from whom? So so I agree with you very much. And, and to share sort of an interesting moment, my favorite moment from last year's Abundance 360 uh, summit in New York City uh, happened on the stage when, uh, I think it was Steve Jurvetson, actually, who is, of course, a multi millionaire, probably billionaire investor, very famous investor, uh, was talking about basic in- income. And then Peter Diamandis kind of jumped into sort of disagree by saying, well, this is what we call socialism. And then Jurvetson responded by saying, no, this is what we call abundance. And to, to which Peter was just touche. And and that was my my favorite moment of that, of
1: that summit, by the way. So abundance enables it at least.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and, and it's also abundance of, of mind and approach and of thinking of starting with that point that everyone should have the basic income, the basic necessity covered, right? So it, I, I really enjoyed that moment, I have to say. but uh, and, and clearly that would suggest that I am myself very much in support of the idea of basic income. Um, so what does that say about capitalism, though, in general? Because uh, one of the things about unemployment is that you need certain amount of unemployment to sustain economic growth, to sort of have competition between workers competing for wages uh, and sort of it's one of the important elements of properly functioning capitalism. So what's that saying about the future of capitalism?
1: So I'm not uh, opposed to capitalism. I don't think capitalism is e- evil by any means. I think capitalism has done incredible, uh, wonderful things in terms of uh, developing all kinds of uh, solutions. And I saw that myself, and of course, in my own history in the m- mobile computing and smartphone industry. Capitalism motivates many people to work hard in a particular way and uh, allows you to figure out which uh, features work and which features don't work. But I'm not a fan at all, at all, of a unregulated capitalism. Capitalism which is left to do its own thing, which will naturally lead to monopolies and cronyism and whatever. So the state has to intervene and the state should be making the policy decisions about what's uh, acceptable and what's not acceptable. And we already have rules and say, well, people can't work a certain number of hours if they're children. You know, you might want to send your child to work for your business, but you've got to educate them and so on. So there are restrictions. In terms of uh, do we need a whole bunch of unemployed in order for uh, uh, companies to be able to find new new people to work I, in their business, I don't see that at all. I mean, you can certainly hire people from uh, existing companies. Uh, in any case, uh, what I think will happen is that people will work uh, for much smaller amounts of time. And so people's businesses, they won't depend on lots of people working uh, 70 or 80 hour weeks. They'll be able to work with uh, people uh, overseeing uh, robots and computers uh, in a much smaller amount of time. And so, what we'll have is that people will be doing studying and podcasting and studying philosophy and studying mathematics and exploring. And some of the time for their own uh, desires, not for money particularly, but for their own desires, they will be doing work that they love.
0: Yeah, because the classic, of course, argument here in North America, especially in the United States, that's usually given is that, you see, if you have basic income, then people would have no incentive to work at all. They would just sit on their couches, play. You know, video games all day long, or just watch soap operas and do nothing in their life, and and of course we know from let's say societies such as Norway, uh, in where you have in in some cases two percent, in some cases one and a half percent of the population is unemployed, and they do have a very strong sort sort of social system which which is very kind of basic income like uh, in its nature and yet people still do choose to work and, and make a difference uh, and they do so in, in fields and in vocations where they're inspired to be a part of and and be more creative and, and actually uh, care more about the outcome I think.
1: Right, and let's be scientific about this too. Let's do some experiments and let's say uh, uh, figure out what works. Uh, I think there will be an act to setting the right amount of basic income. Let's not go overboard at first. But the evidence, uh, not just from Norway, there's a very interesting study that's been published recently from India in which uh, all the economists in the beginning, they said we shouldn't do this experiment. People who are going to get money, they're just going to s- take it and spend it on trivial things and uh, they're going to not, not, not work. Well, the, the controlled study in this uh, groups in India, it's, it's written up uh, in, in various places. There's a book that's just come out about it. Uh, They showed that uh, people were in many cases using that money to start new businesses. They were also using that money to send their their daughters to school in a way that hadn't happened before, making the daughters uh, have better career options. So it wasn't at all that humans are inherently lazy. There is uh, elements in the human life that sometimes we want to take a rest, you know? That's not a bad aspect. But uh, if we're well, if we're healthy psychologically, and if we're not in an oppressive social environment, then we will, after we take the rest, we'll be ready to go. And we'll be pursuing whatever our great uh, vision and uh, desire is in life. And that may well be to work in uh, various uh, enterprises, some some corporations. But the corporations are going to have to improve improve themselves in order to attract that. They're not going to be able just to uh, browbeat people into working there because there's no alternative. So it'll be a humanity plus vision rather than uh, continuing our present humanity minus uh, state of affairs often in some companies in which people are really working in jobs that they, they they wish they weren't in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me a little bit to what Aristotle said once about uh, having to go away or take a break from philosophy so that you can come back to it and do even better philosophy afterwards. So he, he was saying that take, taking time off is very important but going back to to my point about capitalism the more important point that i was trying to make is that i agree with you that capitalism is a is kind of i mean coming from the sort of the socialist world the behind the iron growing up behind the iron curtain you know i i would agree with you entirely that capitalism has been definitely the more productive uh, sort social system for the 20th century but but i believe that its value is one of relative value as as a, as opposed to its alternative rather than having its own intrinsic eternal value as some kind of capitalist ideo- ideologues would would have us believe and i believe that as things progress and as things change, inevitably capitalism will be replaced by something else. Now, unfortunately, some of the economists that I have interviewed on my show have easier time to foresee the end of the world than to foresee the end of capitalism. So my question to you was, as a futurist was pointed more towards that direction. Like, Can we see the end of capitalism and perhaps something coming up behind it?
1: Well, yes, Then there is the so-called third way, the collaborative uh, uh, voluntary sector, which uh, futurists such as uh, Jeremy Ruthkin have talked about. So it's not that capitalism is going to be switched off, but that an existing part of life, which is this voluntary sector in which people give time voluntarily, and they, they don't ask for money when they go and help out the school uh, sports activities as a parent, Uh, that will uh, probably grow and uh, people will be giving uh, free software uh, releases more and more. And so the capitalist uh, economy, which is based on scarcity and uh, still a price mechanism, will coexist with another sector, the voluntary sector, which is based on abundance uh, and which will grow in scale.
0: A hybrid system of a sort.
1: And in due course, uh, who knows whether capitalism itself will dwindle. But I entirely agree that we, uh, people who think we can do better than evolution, if we think we can do better than natural selection, in terms of uh, how the human body can, it can be evolved in the future, we should be able to do better than the free market too. Because the free market, just like natural selection, has got all kinds of uh, nasty side effects. And Evolution, red in tooth and cloth. The free market, red and tooth and cloth. There's lots of pain and uh, bitterness and uh, victims there. In each case, I mean, the analogy is quite interesting. In each case, we have to be careful because evolution often is wiser than we thought we were. And we may rush in kind of a, with a kind of a naive, I mean, this goes back to my first point. Sometimes we are too naive in our application of technology. We don't understand the full system effects. So let's not be too hasty to dismantle what Darwinian evolution is doing. And likewise, not be too hasty to dismantle the mechanisms of capitalism. Indeed. Let's, uh, in each case, use our intelligence to figure out how we can do better.
0: And let's not have, my take on it is, let's not have a, a, an ideological sort of attachment, but rather a scientific approach of test, experiment, adjust, and adapt. That That's my take on it. But anyway, David, we've been talking for about 90 minutes. Wow, time's flying so fast here, I cannot believe it. So unfortunately, it's it's time for us to wrap this conversation up. But let me ask you, what's the best place for people to follow,
1: to find more about you and
0: follow your work?
1: So I have a blog, dw2blog.com, not very imaginative title. I write there occasionally. I write more often on my Twitter feed, DW2. Uh, if people are particularly interested in the futurist angle, there is a London futurist uh, meetup, and if you subscribe to that, even though you don't live in London, even though you never come to the meetings, you will at least get the newsletters, which uh, I think are interesting. And more recently, the political stuff is on the Transpolitical blog. So there are four different places to look for me.
0: Fantastic. yeah. And I can vouch, like, I've been following your work via those letters myself for some time now. And even though I'm not located in London, unfortunately, you know, I have been benefiting from, from being a subscriber. So I would urge anyone to join your list. Um, and then we come to the, to the final question that I always ask, as you know, of all my guests, which is this. How do we wrap this up in the best way possible? What's the message? What's the sort of the moral of the story that we built together, the two of us today, for 90 minutes? What should people take away from this conversation with
1: David Wood? Radical change lies ahead. We've got to be better discussing that change, if we are aware of the possibilities, we'll prepare for it, but even more, we'll be able to shape them. So let's uh, put more of our attention, not in the past, not in the present, but into discussing the future. Let's all become futurists so that that radical change ahead is something we'll be happy to embrace when it comes, rather than something we wish we had anticipated and prepared for differently.
0: Radical change lies ahead. Indeed. David Wood, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. Fascinating conversation.